Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Hello everyone. Uh, Probably many of you don't know me yet, so I will start by introducing myself. My name is Sergio, or Sergio, or as Alan calls me, Sergio. Whatever is easier for you, it's good. It's okay. I'm married to Marcella, and I have two kids, Benjamin, that probably most of you already know, and Magdalena, my daughter. I'm from Chile. I speak Spanish. I try to speak English. And uh, I began my ministry as a missionary with my wife in the rural south of Chile. After seminary, I was ordained an Anglican pastor or priest in 2006. And I led a church revitalization, and I became the rector of St. John's Anglican Church for several years. Then in 2016, I came to the States to study full-time in order to keep improving my theological education. I received a Master of Divinity from the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Who goes to Florida to study? I mean, my family had a great time, but I suffered a lot. And like last year, I received a master's in Christian Biblical Counseling from RTS Charlotte. And I was still in Charlotte when I met a Bishop Allen, who invited me to work with him in Greensboro. And today, I'm working in our Diocese of Christ Our Hope. I'm the leader of the ETNI initiative, which is uh, initiative that works with multi-ethnic people and churches. I'm fostering cultural awareness and mentoring uh, multi-ethnic leaders. I'm also a leader and a speaker in Caminemos Juntos, the Hispanic initiative of the ACNA. I am a Christian biblical counselor. My practice is here on the second floor, and I am serving as a volunteer clergy here at Church of the Redeemer. Well, today we remember the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we dive in, let me ask you something. We all know that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is crucial for our lives. But what about the ascension? Why do you think the ascension is important for you, personally, practically? Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that you enable us this morning to understand what the ascension is and what it means for us, and then by your Spirit, apply that truth to our hearts in order to respond with faith and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection often overshadows the ascension, but is a crucial doctrine in the Bible. We can see prophecies about the ascension in the Psalms, like Psalms 16, 24, 47, and others. Luke finishes his gospel with the ascension in Luke 24. So if Luke and Acts is one story in two parts, it is fascinating that the ascension is right in the middle. But Paul also mentions the ascension numerous times, and the book of Hebrews contains many allusions. The Ascension is also a central historical doctrine of the Church. It is a vital part of the creeds, the Church Fathers' theology, and is in various confessions of the Protestant churches. 
So from a doctrinal and theological standpoint, there's so much to say about the ascension. In fact, our soteriology, Christology, pneumatology, Trinitarian theology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and many other ologies, including our pastoral theology, must be shaped according to our comprehension of the ascension. However, this is not a class of systematic theology, this is a sermon. So let us start by thinking that Jesus came into this world physically. As Philippians 2.7 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Why? Because Jesus had to live the life we should live. He had to die the death we should die. And then he rose from the death in order to show that he's the son of God who has conquered sin and death. After 40 days of his resurrection, Jesus had to depart this world in his resurrected body somehow, thus being the ascension, the completion of the incarnation event. Okay, so what happened that day? I will concentrate on the specific event of Acts uh, 1, 9 uh, to 11. And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Did Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. C.S. Lewis describes this narrative in a very short phrase. He says, the disciples first saw a short vertical movement, then a bag luminosity, and then nothing. That's the ascension. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. The Son of God in the flesh was, in, was raised visibly. Jesus' humanity did not evaporate when he went back to glory. And so this was neither a mere obscuring of his presence to us, as if he's still here somewhere and we can't see him. No, this was the translation of Jesus locally and bodily from this earth into heaven. But let's take a closer look at their situation in verses 10 and 11, because we see two angels were present, same as the resurrection, because this is also a crucial moment of the redemptive history. I don't know if these were the same angels. Do you remember them? They asked Mary Magdalene, why are you weeping? And now, in the ascension, they asked the disciples, why are you still looking at into heaven? Why do they ask questions in both situations? Because Mary Magdalene was asking who took Jesus' body. And the disciples, before this event in verse 6, asked Jesus when he will establish the state of Israel again. But Jesus had already told them many times that he will rise and ascend to heaven. He had already explained to them the nature of his kingdom. But they did not understand and believe, and I hope you do this morning. Okay, so where did Jesus go when he ascended? 
In the Bible, there are various meanings of the term heaven. Heaven can refer to the skies, as it's translated in another version, the firmament, the space. But Jesus did not become a spaceman and, and went outer space, right? Because heaven is also the place where God is, the place where his people enjoy his presence and communion with him. So Jesus' ascension into heaven point us to the reality that he has gone to be in the infinite presence of the infinite God. Therefore, when Jesus is taken up into heaven, first and foremost, it means that he will be physically in the presence of and in communion with his heavenly Father. And in the same way as verse 11 says, one day he will physically come back. So the ascension also confirms his return. This is the heart of the doctrine of the ascension, that the God and man, Jesus Christ, is physically at the right hand of the heavenly Father right now. But as I said at the beginning, what it means to us. As I said, many things, but today I want to highlight only three main ideas to remember. So first, because Jesus ascended to heaven, he is king and lord of all. Jesus' ascension is a vital stage in his enthronement or his coronation because he's going to the right hand of the Father. The right hand is a place of honor, status, authority. We see Jesus at the right hand in different passages of the New Testament like Acts 7, 55, 56, Hebrews 1, 3, 2, 12, 2, or 1 Peter 1. First uh, Peter 3.22. And the way the Father chose for the Son to depart this world is appropriate to emphasize this truth. So the disciples could understand later that Jesus was going to heaven to reign this world. Why this is important for them and is important to us? Because if Jesus is Lord, the world, its people, and all that happened in it is not Lord. For instance, the cultural and political trends of this world are influential, persuasive, but not Lord. Socialism, capitalism are just economic systems, but not Lord. The wealthy, the powerful, the famous player, the popular singer or YouTuber, the respected scholar, even the famous pastor, are influential people, yes, but not Lord. So because of Jesus' ascension, Jesus is over every system, philosophy, or person in this world. And this must bring us assurance and hope. But what about your life? What about your life? Let's think about the concept of lordship. Many of us have the world decor with Joshua 24:15 in our house. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And we also call Jesus Lord Jesus. But often I feel that we use this concept very lightly. Do you know what it means to have a Lord? It means that I am a servant. So I must do first what pleases my Lord 
instead of what pleases me. Is this a reality in your life? When you say, Lord, do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? This is challenging, not only because of our sinful and independent nature, but especially in a culture where it's all about freedom, where it's all about what I feel, think, and want to do, where no one has the authority to judge or even threaten my freedom to do what I want to do with my life. But we look at the ascension, and it's the opposite. Because if Jesus is Lord, you are not Lord. Your feelings are natural, but not Lord. Your thoughts are important, but not Lord. Your choices are desirable, but not Lord. If Jesus is King and Lord, there are only two ways to respond to him. Or you follow your heart on the world, or you follow your King, Jesus. So this morning, I ask you, what are you really following and serving? Yourself or your King? Now, how does King Jesus rule our lives if he is physically in heaven at the right hand of the Father? Remember Genesis 1 and John chapter 1. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the personification of God's revelation. This is what the Apostle John saw in Revelations 1 and 2. He saw Jesus with a sword in his mouth and the Spirit going out to his people. This is what we also see in Ephesians 6, 17, because the sword of the Spirit is God's word. So the word and the Spirit always, always work together. Therefore, Jesus rules our lives through his Spirit-empowered words. So the question is, are you submitting to the Lordship of Jesus by receiving, accepting, and following his word, his truth? Or do you just want to add only a portion of his truth into my own desires, thoughts, and choices, being in the end only true to yourself? Well, if you realize that Jesus has not really been the King and Lord of your life on his terms, I call you today to look at the ascension. Second, because, second, no? Second, yes. <laughs> because Jesus ascended to heaven, he is in control and we are not alone. He is in control. Remember this, and we are not alone. Let, let me ask you, what do you think is the most difficult thing to believe about God? That he created the world in seven days? That Noah's flood was universal? That Jonah was three days in the fish? That the Son of God was born from a teenage, teenager called Mary and the Holy Spirit? Jesus' miracles, 
that Jesus rose and ascended to heaven? I will say there is another one, and more difficult. Romans 8.28, to believe that in all things, even the most difficult, painful, unfair, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. To trust in this promise depends on Jesus' ascension. The disciples were going to have every reason to doubt in their lifetimes. They were going to experience persecution. They were experiencing a world that didn't look like Jesus was ringing over. And this is the same truth for us today. Some of you may be looking around this crazy world that we live in, the wars, the natural disasters, high crime, social and political division, moral decline, and you may be saying to yourself, it seems that God is not present in this world. Or you may be looking at your life struggles. You're probably struggling with health issues, with disobedient kids, harsh divorced parents, economic problems, broken relationships. And you may be saying to yourself, it seems God is not present in my life and family. So when you think that Jesus is not in charge and there is no plan, I say to you, look at the ascension. But the ascension not only means that Jesus is king and is in control. It means that Jesus is also our high priest. We have a king priest who intercedes for us and knows what we are going through. He offers mercy and might because his throne is a place of both glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, we will struggle with doubt and fear because of suffering in our lives. But as Hebrews 4.15 says, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And as Hebrews 7.25 says, he always lives to make intercession for us. In other words, Jesus in heaven prays for you and for me, giving us strength and comfort on this side of the eternity. But you know what? This is not all. Because Jesus ascended to heaven, he is also with us and in us. As John 16, 7 says, Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I depart from you so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Jesus confirmed this in Acts 1.10, which is later accomplished in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I will leave the role of the Spirit in us as witnesses of the gospel to the person who is going to preach on Pentecost. But Christ's ascension was also necessary for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his people, in us, in his church. It is like Jesus saying, I'm here at the right hand of God physically, but I am with you and in you by the Spirit. In other words, the coming of the Holy Spirit is also an evidence that Jesus is 
ringing over. So brothers and sisters, every time we see a world torn apart, every time we experience a broken relationship, or even death, we are tempted to question that Jesus is not in control, that Jesus is not present in our lives, in our families. But this morning, I call you again to look at the ascension. Third and last point, because Jesus ascended to heaven, we must set our hearts on him. For the Greeks and Romans, the great human struggle was between the mind and the passions. If you wanted to achieve courage, self-control, and wisdom, you had to subdue your emotions to the power of the reason. Today, interestingly, the great struggle is almost the opposite. People say our deepest feelings are who we really are, and we must not repress or deny them. So the human struggle is between my personal emotions and a repressive society that often represses self-expression and realization. But the Bible teaches neither of them. In a scripture, the great struggle happens in the human heart, which is cited more than 700 times in the Bible. The heart is the core of our inner being. So, while your visible actions happen through your physical body, those actions are driven by thoughts, beliefs, and desires in your heart. So the great battle is where is your heart's greatest love, hope, and trust will be directed. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.2, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand. Because when we take our hearts off the ascended Christ, it will be put on ourselves and the world. And we will start getting distracted by everything in us and around us. We will desire the earthly things over the heavenly ones. And instead of using or enjoying the created things according to God's will, we will idolize them. For instance, if I ask you this morning, where do you find ultimate happiness and pleasure in life? Where? Where do you have your ultimate happiness and pleasure? What will you say? Is it in your relationship and union with the ascended Christ or in the created things? In your beautiful and perfect house, car, toys, clothes, food, travel, or in satisfying your earthly desires no matter how? What about your sexual desires? What about pornography? I mention this because most churches and people don't talk about the massive elephant in the room. There are mind-blowing statistics about pornography and Christians. Let me provide you with just two numbers. According to the Covenant Eye and the Barna Group, 
68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view and fight with pornography regularly. Of young Christians, adults between 18 and 24, 76% actively search for porn. By the way, this is not only a men issue. I cannot address this topic biblically in this sermon, but just think about how can your relationship and union with the ascended Christ can help you and deliver you. So brothers and sisters, where is your heart set? In the creator or the creation? If it is in the creation, this is idolatry. And you will get disappointed. You will get disappointed because you will never find fulfillment. It will never be enough. But setting our hearts on the ascended Christ, it's also about how we see ourselves. Who defines who you are? Yourself? Others? Who defines who you are? Is your identity in your relationship and union with the ascended Christ? Or is it in the role you are playing in life? Like the perfect mom, the funny or cool dad, the oldest child, the rebellious kid, the class clown, the intellectual person, the busy guy, the smart girl, and so on. These are roles are who you think you are or what others say who you are. But as a Christian, you are not the role that you are playing today in your life. Or is your identity in your vocation or job? I am a student. I am a stay-at-home mom, a teacher, a lawyer, an engineer, a professor, a doctor, a carpenter, a farmer, a truck driver, a priest, a bishop. Yes, we obey our cultural mandate, God's cultural mandate, and glorify God through our work. However, my job, my vocation, is not who I am. It's what I do for a living today, and that can change next week or in 10 years. But it doesn't change who I am. Or is your identity in your struggles in life on this side of eternity? Depression, anxiety, OCD, single parent, anorexia, obesity, unemployed, unmarried, divorced, widow, etc. As a Christian, you are not your struggle. You are not your disability, as you are not your sin. Listen this carefully. You are not your sin. You are not your idolatry. So you are not your addictions. You are not your sinful sexual desires. Yes, we struggle with sin, 
a lot, but we are not our sin. Or is your identity in your past? Victim of some abuse, racism, bullying, adopted child, refugee, immigrant, privilege, poor, southern, northern, western, eastern. Of course, our past affects our present. It affects how the self is understood, how thoughts are organized, how emotions are named, or how relationships are conducted. However, because of our union with the ascended Christ, we are new creatures. What does it mean? That we do not struggle anymore with our past? No. It means that because of our union with the ascended Christ, our past no longer determines who we are. And therefore, there is hope. Because in Christ, we can change regardless our history. Amen? Amen. Amen. But I don't want to sound simplistic or reductionistic. So let me say a side note here, because this is very normal. Probably you have been struggling with how you see or understand yourself, and someone at church had said to you, hey, brother, sister, you just need to put your identity in Christ. That's all. Although this is true, it's not that easy, right? A few weeks ago, in a counseling session, a mom of three, who is struggling with fear of men, she uh, said to me, uh, hey, you know what, Sergio? All the time I said to my teenage daughter, honey, remember this, your identity is in Christ. And I don't understand what it really means and how this truth applies to me. I, I am struggling a lot with this. I don't have time to explain biblical identity in this sermon, but I can't stop explaining that understanding my identity in the ascended Christ is more complex than understanding the equation of salvation. Yes, I've been adopted as a beloved child of God through faith and repentance, and this is a beautiful truth and very important, crucial. However, the doctrine of adoption is not all I need to know and articulate. For instance, I am also a creature, so I need to know my creator. Therefore, the more I know God, the more I know myself. And I'm also justified. I'm also a new creation. I am a saint. I am a servant. I am in Christ. And I'm not yet perfect. You see, making the whole gospel tangible to see my past, present, and myself in the ascended Christ is more than knowing a true and beautiful statement. Because placing all the pieces together in your life again, or for the first time, is not that easy. It is a process, and sometimes a painful one. So look for help 
in people capable of interpreting the scriptures, the person, and bring them together. But remember, there is hope. You are not alone. Jesus is in control with you, in you, and remember his promise. His promise that says that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who call us by his own glory and goodness. So brothers and sisters, the ascension should draw us away from trying to find in the temporal things of this world what only the eternal God can provide for us. If this morning you realize that you have been trying to find your fullness, your identity in the wrong place, I call you to look at the ascension. I finish and summarize with three questions for you. Who is ruling your life today? If King Jesus is not ruling your life in his way, on his terms, this is, not tomorrow, not next, next week, this is a great moment to repent. This is a great moment to turn your life to him and believe. Second, do you believe God is in control and always with you? If you don't, this is a great moment to trust that beyond all the struggles in your life, Jesus is in control and working through these things for your good. And lastly, where is your heart set? I encourage you to set your heart on the sended Christ and let him fill and define you. But remember, all of this that I have been talking this morning is not about doing more. This is about knowing and trusting more in the one who already did all for you and for me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you the honor and praise because your son was seen by, by angels, preached among the nations, believed in this world, and taken up to glory. So in this Ascension Sunday, we thank you for allowing us to comprehend just a segment of your power, glory, and mercy, and help us to respond through faith and obedience to your truth. In the ascended Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.